lot of things to pray for this morning. John has experienced a little bit of personal tragedy this morning, but we're going to pray that the Lord would have victory as he has the opportunity to preach at a funeral this morning and, and really uh, meet people where they're at, and, and we're going to pray for him. We're going to also pray for this sermon this morning, that the Lord would use it, despite myself in a lot of ways, and uh, that, that, that we're going to really go through some pretty deep passages, and so we're going to kind of get... You know, you're going to have to put on your feet caps a little bit. So I'm just praying that the Lord would open our blind hearts at times and uh, or, and we would hear what He would say this morning. So let's pray. Lord, I just, I'm just so thankful that you brought us, this group of people, to this place this morning to hear your word. And I pray that we would just speak that your words, that we would hold to the promises of God and we would, we would trust in you. We pray for John this morning as he's... Um, preaching in the midst of tragedy and how you can take tragedy and turn it into victory. So, Lord, I just pray that, um, that there would be a, uh, just a spirit of peace in that place this morning, that you would give John the words to say. And um, in the midst of tragedies, so many tragedies uh, in, in, the, in our midst, Lord, I just pray that you would be a God who shows up and shows off. And so, Lord, I just I just pray for this this word that we're about to receive, Lord. I pray that it would go deep within us and bear fruit in our lives, and um, we would come away from this place changed people. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. So, uh, I hope you're all doing well, and um, summer's treating you well. So, and you're not too sleepy this morning because we're going to be kind of just rushing through some word as much as we can. We're just going to um, cram it in. All right. So. Um, I'm gonna, this is going to be kind of a completion of the sermon that we began last week of how we began to talk about the purpose of the wilderness and how the, the wilderness is really this picture of what the Lord is doing in our lives. And we walked through several successive steps in which the Israelites went through these different spots once they were taken out of Egypt and are going through the wilderness. And how the wilderness is really this thing that the Lord is trying to end all self-sufficiency in our lives. That the Lord is trying to take away any idea that we have any strength in and of ourselves to be who He wants us to be. And that God is our strength. That God is going to be the one that sustains us in the midst of um, the wilderness. That God is going to be um, the one who gets the victory and ultimately who's glorified. So the wilderness being this, this picture for us of the Lord just bringing us through these seasons where He's trying to end anything within us, that would that in our flesh, that would say, I can do this on my own. I have the ability within me to, um, to enter into the promised land. So what is the promised land? We briefly talked about this. And I, I just want to um, go through it a little bit even deeper this morning. But the promised land for us, if I can use even another picture, would be the garden where Jesus um, meets with Adam and Eve or the Lord and would say, you know, I th think it was Jesus, would meet with Adam and Eve in that place. And they were in perfect relationship with one another and at rest with one another. And, and in the midst of that, Adam and Eve are experiencing just a relational joy with the Lord. They're, they're eating of the fruit. They're in perfect peace with the Lord. This is a perfect picture of what it is, this land, this place in which the Lord is bringing us to currently, which one day will be finally fulfilled in heaven completely. But it because, now this is kind of thick a little bit. I don't even know if I can wrap my mind around it. But because we exist in an eternal relationship with God now, currently, we currently are exist in that place of eternity. And out of that place of eternity, the Lord is bringing us into a new reality that is spiritual as opposed to here and now in this place. And so the Lord is sanctifying us. He's bringing us into a place where we are have our minds changed to think on the heavenly things to a place He's, he's actually got us, to a place we actually exist, into an eternal place. Now, in the place that He wants us now, currently, or that He is bringing us to is a sanctified place um, in which you and I become spiritual men and women as opposed to uh, fleshy, 
uh, existing in this reality, existing what we see around us, existing in this place. He actually wants to create a whole new reality to where we exist in relationship with Him more fully. And I think some of the manifestations of, of existing in that promised land uh, are, there's several. But first would be, okay, we may think, and we've got to get this out of our mind, first and foremost, that the blessing of the Lord may come in the form of like a new car, you know, like a, a new house, a new relationship, a new job, any number of things. I don't know like what your favorite thing is, that, you know, like mine, the blessing of the Lord is just like coffee sometimes, like a good cup of coffee. I'd be like, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, thank you for the blessing. Or, uh, you know, uh, or a, a good parking spot, you know, sometimes. I know some of you do that, like when you're going along that perfect parking spot right up front, you're like, praise the Lord. Um, you blessed me. I'm in the promised land. Uh, that's not in the promised land. Completely. Now that's a blessing from the Lord. God's mercies are new every day. Um, and so you thank Him for the cup of coffee in the parking spot, you know, because that's a mercy in some form or fashion. But that is not the promised land. Okay? The, the promised land is not you ending in a place of, uh, you know, uh, uh, wealth and health and different things like that. Not to go down the stairs. I believe the Lord wants all those things in some form or fashion for us. But but the, the really, the promised land, the manifestations of it, I don't want to say that this is the promised land. This is the manifestations of being in the promised land where the Lord is taking you out of the wilderness and into a new place is, is the fruits of the Spirit. That's the, that's the land flowing with milk and honey, right? Where you experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, faithfulness, all those different things. In your life. So your relationships experience love in them. Your, your, your job is a place of peace. You know, there's joy. You are just happy to go to work, even if you're, I don't know what the worst job ever would be. Um, it, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of terrible jobs um, out there. You know, like, I, I know the worst job probably for me would be to take care of, um, of older people, you know, but I don't know why. I, I, don't, I change enough diapers because I've got two kids in my house. I would not want to do that, you know, to take care of older people. That would be the worst job ever. But in the, what the Lord is saying is, is that even in the midst of that, you can be joyful. You know, you can experience joy. You can experience peace. It's not about the job. He's taking you out of the circumstances. So there's fruit of the Spirit that's manifested in your life. That's part of being in the promised land. Christian character, or more specifically, the life of Christ is being manifested in your life. So as, as you live out your daily life, it is not as if you are even living, but the, the life of Christ is living in you. And so, um, and so Christian character may be uh, manifested. So it, it, it's, it's not even... So much more about what would Jeremy do in this situation or whatever. But y'all know the old saying, like, what would Jesus do? It's not even what Jesus would do. It's not you doing it. It actually is Jesus doing it. Okay? So this is the Christian character being um, manifested um, in, in your life. Another thing may be that, and this may clear up some confusion for some of you, but the, but the spiritual life is also the same place where you find the ability to minister. This is where you come into place of, of where you flow in your gifts and talents. Now, this does not mean either that you are a gifted person. I, I mean, some of you some of you may be really gifted at certain things. I don't know what they might be, you know. Um, just take, for example, I, I'm a pretty good-looking guy. I would say, like, I'm probably better looking than most of you, you know. Now, I can use that to my personal gain. And, and say, I'm a really gifted person, and I use my looks to basically win y'all over with this charm and everything that I have. And, but, but that is not what the Lord is saying, actually. That's not the intentions of the gifted person. The gifted person is a person who's actually flowing in God's strength and ability. And he's putting the people before you that you're meant to shepherd um, and, and meant to um, navigate with. In essence, so you're going to in the promised land. You're going to begin instead of in your own strength, but in God's strength, begin to minister. Um, teaching. Now that may sound like the same thing as ability to minister, but teaching is one of those things to where you're going to be able in the promised land to be able to communicate the word of God 
and also you're going to be able to work through the Word in such a way that you're going to have, be able to communicate it and able to process it and feed on it and it feeds you. Because the Spirit is wanting to teach you all things and is, and is revealing all things to you. So you're going to begin to work through the Word in new ways. Another thing that is going to become clear to you um, in, in the promised land, and these are all just manifestations, it's not being in the promised land, uh, it's not the actual promised land. Remember, actual promised land is just being in relationship with God. This flows out of relationship with God. The Spirit will cry out that you are a child of God. So being in the promised land, you're going to have assurance of your salvation. You are gonna, you're not going to lie awake at night thinking about uh, um, am I saved or not? You're going to have the assurance this need on the, on, the, on the Word of God. You're going to be able to stand on it, and the Spirit is going to be proclaiming that within your soul. Now, I would not say you could, get, you could go really weird with this and begin to say, okay, you're, you're, you're thinking about your salvation. Am I really saved? And you're evaluating your works and different things. That's not the intention of what I would say at all. The promised land is just... It, when the Spirit begins to proclaim in your heart and you have the realization that you are a child of God. Alright? Uh, and I'm going through these things really fast and we can talk about them later if you'd like. Um, but the Spirit intercesses on your behalf. He's working out all things for your good in the midst of the promised land. He, so the things that um, are, are taking, uh, taking place in your life are for your own good. Alright? So those are some manifestations really just of being a spiritual man or woman. And begin to ask yourself this. Am I a spiritual man or woman? Do I, do I exist in a place that's in essence outside of this reality? Just the, the things that I'm holding to. The place that my mind is set on. Is it a place that is spiritual in nature? Or is it a place that exists within this realm, this context of what we understand and know? Are you still, in essence, looking back to Egypt and saying, okay, that's where my home exists, that's where I exist, or another word would just be the world. Do you exist in the world currently? Or is, are you becoming a spiritual um, man or woman? Now, for us to move forward, um, we talked about last week how the Lord is taking us from that place of the world to that promised land. And the wilderness is um, this practical application of what the Lord is doing to end all self-effort in our lives so that we can actually flow in the Spirit. Now we've really got to cover the doctrine of what it is to, in the New Testament, of what it is to really flow in the Spirit. And how does that work in our lives? And how does that bring us to places of deliverance? So this morning, it's going to be more focused, less on the practical, and more on the doctrine of those things. And how does, what's the Lord's means of, of actually bringing us, is it, us into a place of flowing in the Spirit, um, to where we are spiritual men and women. And first, I really want to look at uh, what... What could, um, why we exist in a fleshy um, uh, world, in essence, after we become believers, all right? Before that, you're really going to have to put on your thinking caps a little bit, and let's turn to Galatians 5, 1 through 5. I don't think we'll have the, um, the scripture up there, I apologize, uh, but we will, um, we, if you can just read along with me, uh, I'm assuming most of you brought your Bible or some electronic device or something that you can turn along with me. Um, so you're going to have to do a little bit of reading this morning. Alright? Galatians 5, 1 through 5. Now this is a really powerful passage and John is going to teach through the book of Galatians in the next couple weeks. And um, so I'm hoping this will be a segue into the series that he goes into this next week. So Galatians 5, 1 through 5. For freedom, uh, Christ has set us free. Now, that's a pretty cool statement just to think about. For freedom's sake, Christ has set you free. Um, but that's not where we're going to stop. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again uh, um, submit again to a yoke of slavery. So don't go back to 
Egypt. Don't go back to where you were a slave, is what he's saying. And this is how we end up back in that carnal place, all right? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Uh, I, so y'all know what circumcision but is, but uh, I don't want to go down there. Um, but uh, but <laughs> that was a bad choice of words. <laughs> that was a really poor choice of words. I got a joke. Uh, okay? Uh, uh, a Baptist, a Catholic, and a Jew walk into a, uh, or go and train a bear. Alright? I'm not going to go down here. Never mind. This is a bad joke. You can just go where you want wants to. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Okay. Um, the Lord forgive me. Uh, I know not what I do. <laughs> and so, circumcision is essentially the Jews returning back to the law. Alright? So, returning back to the law, in essence, they were returning back to a merit-based system where they were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in self-efforts to make them right with God. Alright? So the, the, this, this group of saved Christians who were also Jews, or the Judaizers, came into the Gentiles and said, it's a, now you've got to return back to marriage. So these are actually saved people, all right? These are people who are, who are saved, who suddenly have transitioned from the place, their place of justification, where they were saved by the free grace of God, and now are saying it's based off of their personal merit. And, and they, the Judaizers should come in and say, you've got to do this stuff. All right? So, three. I testify then to every man who accepts circumcision that he obligated to keep the whole law. So, he's saying, if you're going to go down this path, you're going to have to do it all. Uh, you are, are severed from, now catch this, this is hard. This is a hard statement to work, to work through. And you need to work through it in original languages and put it in context, unless you'll, you'll end up in some weird places. You are separate from Christ. You, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You are severed from grace. You are severed from the power of Christ in your life. There is, there is no longer this power. Now, what you may go down, where you may end up at, is you say this person has lost their salvation, or they were never saved in the first place. But that's not what this is talking about. Galatians is clearly speaking to believers who are saved, who have returned back to the law. They have been justified. Paul speaks of them as a saved group of individuals. But these are people who have suddenly turned around and begun to do the law again. And so... Paul is saying, and we must understand this, to return to the law, to a merit-based system where we're trying to make ourselves right with God, is to sever the power of God in our lives, and in essence, to end up in the flesh once again. To step out of the reality where you're entering into a free-flowing relationship with Christ, and to enter back into a relationship that is severed. And you will find yourself, once again, in that yoke of slavery. You will find yourself in a place where you're enslaved to the things that you were set, set free from and are set free from. And so, and so man so often finds himself in that place. But this is the big thing, okay? This is the big, this is the really big place. That you've got to understand. And this is the hard part for my, me to wrap my mind around. And to actually um, to, to grasp this. And to work through it. That in my sanctification process. The Lord bringing me into a promised land. In essence. It is not my sin that keeps me from the promised land. It's my unbelief. It's my lack of faith in Christ. It is not where I make mistakes. It is not the place where I, where I end up in a, a sin and I, and I look at myself and I'm like, why did I go down this road? Why did I, why did this, why did I end up in this place? That is 
not the reason you and I end up back in slavery. That is not why the power of God is severed from our life. The power of God is severed from your life when you trust in yourself to get yourself back right with God. The power of God is severed from your life when you do not place your faith in the finished work of God and it severs that free-flowing relationship. So you've got to understand that, that for you and I, it's not what I do that defines me. It's what I believe in. It's what I'm placing my faith in. And ultimately, it's who I put my trust in. Because here's the deal. If you are trusting that somehow your merit system is going to get you back right with God in the midst of sin, you are putting your eyes on yourself where the Lord says, what severs our relationship is not me, but, it, but it's you because you have stopped just perceiving what I'm freely giving to you. It's just faith. That's all it is. And so Galatians um, gives us this very clear doctrine. Now, they use the picture, if we could go back to the Old Testament just briefly, um, is you don't need to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. You remember at Kadesh Barnea where we talked about last week where God had brought the Israelites to this place and finally he said, it's about time for you to enter into the promised land. And the 12 spies went in and two came back with a good report and 10 came back with a bad report. Right? So all these things that the Israelites had done where they had grumbled, they would sinned, they had done all that, they had made a calf out of um, gold and started worshiping it. All these different things that could have kept them out of the promised land. The thing that kept them out of the promised land and severed their relationship with God was none of those sins. It was simply their unbelief where they looked at themselves and they said, we are like grasshoppers to these people. Whereas God says, don't you understand? I give you victory. And as a result, they end up walking in the wilderness for the rest of these 38 years. Now, if you were to trace this story a little bit further, being in the flesh, this group of people in the flesh, and then attempt to say, okay, we're going to get this thing right. Now, we're going to go into battle. We are believing you, God. We're believing you. And if you remember the story, the Amalekites, they, they're, they're going, they say, okay, we're going to atone for our sins. And they run in headlong into battle, chasing the, after this group of Amalekites, and they lose horribly and are pushed deeper into the wilderness, deeper into despair than they ever were. And the reason being because they were severed from the power of God in their lives. They were severed from the grace that was in their life because they were trusting in themselves and being in the flesh. They were, uh, they were, um, they were pushed back into more despair. Watchman D says this, if we can bring up this quote. He says, and this is a, a pretty phenomenal quote. He says, God's way of deliverance is altogether different from man's way. Man's way is to try to suppress sin by seeking to overcome it. God's way is to remove the sinner. Many Christians mourn over their weakness, thinking that if, if only they were stronger, all would be well. But God's means of delivering us from sin is not making us stronger and stronger. Rather, it is by making us weaker and weaker. God sets us free from the dominion of sin, not by strengthening our old man, but by crucifying him. Not by helping him to do anything, but entirely removing him from the scene of action. So in the wilderness, God's attempts to end self-sufficiency. They turn around and become self-sufficient. They're saying, I am going to overcome this enemy. I will be stronger than this enemy. We can beat it back and return to union with God. You cannot do it in your flesh. You'll lose the battle every time. You'll be destroyed every single time you attempt to do it in your flesh, in your own strength. You'll find yourself in greater despair than ever before. And instead of allowing God to bring you to a place of weakness where you trust and depend on Him, 
You, you harden your heart, and I harden my heart, and say, I'm going to get stronger and beat this thing down. And man has many attempts and, and, many, and many ways of, that are man-centered and really are self-sufficiency in action. And, and this may be painful because it's painful for me, and I'm hoping it's not too painful, but I think there are many ways in which we have unknowingly trained each other to support the flesh rather than allow it to be crucified. Alright? And so there's many things that we have done, even as a preacher, I know that I've done in the past, as a pastor and a shepherd, that I've done. And, and so I think there are several things that we must work through that Christian culture has gathered as a whole that are, are um, that actually bolster the flesh and prop it up rather than allowing it to be crucified through faith. Alright? In the first place, that I really see us trying to overcome and in our own strength is through some terminology. A lot of times, me as a preacher, me as a pastor, and you around different pastors and preachers, we may implore you to personal commitment. I may say, you need to be more committed to God. You need to, even in your justification sometimes, when we're asking you to be um, uh, when we're calling you to salvation, we may say that you need to be a committed individual to the Lord. And this language doesn't end up proving to be helpful all that much. And I want to challenge you in this, okay? Because our mindset so often is that I, can, I would be more in more of that promised land if I was more committed to the Lord. Now, did you know the, the word commitment, as we would use it in that way, is actually never used in the New Testament? Now, under the merit-based system of the law, you were required to be committed. But, but under the New Covenant, we do not find that word commitment actually anywhere in the New Testament. So a lot of times, me as a pastor... I could get you worked up. I can start crying about my kids. I can start, you know, I can get you like in a place where you're ready to make a promise to the Lord. And we do this many times to new believers. Uh, I'll put it this way. The new believer, and even sometimes the older believers, believe themselves to be committed to the Lord uh, um, in some form or fashion. The new believer often gets attention for such claims and promises, but soon the believer will begin to realize how small their commitment to the Lord really is. And such claims that they have made become necessary for them to, to, to put out there. And they've got to say that they're, because they've made the claim, they've got to hold to that claim in such a way. And what happens is, is this is the perfect place for the flesh to manifest itself. Because the flesh, and when I say, I'm committed to the Lord, I am God's servant, I'm going after Him wholeheartedly. But in the background, there's sin in my life. This is the perfect place for the flesh to, um, to become bigger, to become stronger. And in all reality, the Lord is driving me to a place that I'm weaker and weaker, and yet on the outside, I'm proclaiming my personal commitment to the Lord. Now, your commitment, you've got to understand this. When I say commitment, this is me making promises to God. God doesn't respect your promises to Him. He respects His promises to Himself. He can fulfill His word. I can't fulfill my personal word. I cannot fulfill my personal commitment to the Lord. I can't fulfill my end of the bargain. And so, what happens is, is the flesh actually grows in personal commitment as I try in self-effort to make my way to the promised land. The second place that I can find myself... Uh, 
seeing the flesh raise up, is my attempts to suppress sin. My attempts to pick out singular sins, and all sin is the same, okay? All sin in, in the eyes of the Lord is the same. Some bears more weight in, in you, your life and my life. It has more effects. But when I attempt to suppress sin, really what I'm trying to say is I need to get victory over this sin for the Lord to use me. Okay, so what happens is, I say, once my marriage is right, that's the place I will begin to serve the Lord. And so I pick out a singular sin, or maybe you're a person, I'm just using a, a random sin, alcoholic. And you say, the Lord can't use me because I'm an alcoholic, and so I must suppress this sin, I must get victory over it before the Lord will use me. And so you think in your mind, and I may think in my mind that maybe what it is that will help me is more reading of my Bible, uh, more prayer, more fasting, more whatever. And I can suppress this sin. I can push it back. I can beat it down. I can, I can move it into a place where it is no more. I can beat it, and then the Lord can use me. But all that ends up happening is that place is sin and the flesh are wicked and they will not be beat down. It will just manifest itself into something different. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to cuss real hard at it. I'm trying to suppress it. You know, I'm holding it back. I'm holding back those curse words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it down. But those words will just manifest itself into some different because I've got all my mind and my energy focused on not cussing. And the next thing I know, I'm yelling at my wife and I'm yelling at my kids and I'm yelling at all these other people. Because sin has not actually died. It's just morphed into something else. I mean, if there's anything that really knows how to evolve really well, it's the flesh. The flesh is really good at evolving into whatever form and fashion it can find to find mastery in your life. You cannot suppress sin. Sin cannot be suppressed. Now, I think there's a, a really, the next one I would say that is man-centered, can be man-centered. I think it's useful. I will say that. But I don't think it's the, the answer, okay? If I were to say, if you're looking for deliverance, I do not think this is the answer, but I think it's useful uh, and is biblical, but it can become something that is not useful. And that's specifically, a lot of us in the midst of our sin turn to accountability to save us. So we get in the midst of accountability groups, and I say, you watch me for this sin, and I'll watch you for this sin, and we'll watch each other, and we'll keep the flesh in check with one another. Now, all you've ultimately done, a lot of times, is you've is you've said, okay, somebody else deal with my flesh. Somebody else work with my flesh here. Now, accountability isn't bad all the time. It's got to be put in the proper context. But a lot of times what it ends up happening in accountability groups is somebody knows this specific sin in your life. Okay, say it's um, the beat my dog. And, and you, know that, you know that sin in my life. So you ask me, you know, Robbie asked me, hey, did you beat your dog this week? No, I didn't beat my dog this week. But in the background, what I'm not telling you is, <laughs> it fill in the blank. So the flesh actually ends up getting strengthened by my, by my lack of confession of other sin and, and by thinking that I've gained victory in this particular sin. And so accountability becomes something that's, that's, um, that mutates into something God never intended it to be. And this is the last place that I would say really encourages the flesh and is, is, is um, rampant in Christian culture today. And, and you've really got to put some biblical framework onto it so that you can work through this, so that your flesh isn't growing in this place, all right? And that would be, I would classify it into three different things. Emotionalism, revivalism, and experiences. Now this is, uh, I am not 
trying to. I am not. I really do not desire to. Um, I just desire in the midst of this to be a pastor and a shepherd. Well, I don't. I don't desire to like knock anybody down. I, I mean to speak lovingly about these things. All right. But this. So here, that that's my desire in in working through these things. I'm working through them with you as well. This is where the believer often seeks out emotional experiences, revivals, um, or revivals, or or um, emotionalism as their desire for spiritual growth, and they cling to them in such a way that they become needy. Most often, these experiment. Uh, Experiences are just self's pitiful attempts at feeling religious. That's just my words, alright? Self's pitiful attempts at feeling religious. They make you feel good about yourself just for a short period of time. And it becomes necessary for you to over and over to have these experiences for you to feel right with God. To have these emotionally drawn experiences. Now, emotions are not bad. Experiences are not bad. Uh, uh, revival is not bad. But when we cling to those things for mastery over self, you will not find deliverance in that place. You will not find entering into the promised land. That is not the answer. All those things do is they end up bringing you up to a high and letting you down when you trust in those things in any form or fashion. So if we place our trust in different ways and in our own self-effort, in our own self-sufficiency, we try to find ways to find mastery over the flesh when all that's really happening in the midst of all these different things is the flesh is just trying to stay in control the whole time and bringing you back to a place of slavery. Lewis Mary Schaefer said this, and I think this is um, really important. He was a, just a brilliant man in some ways. He said, the satanic message for this age will be reformation and self-development. While the message of God is regeneration by the power of the Spirit. Hmm. Let me read this again so it sinks in, and I'll try to explain some of these words better. The satanic message for this age will be a reformation, will be reformation in self-development. While the message of God is regeneration by the power of the Spirit. So what does that mean, reformation in self-development? That would be me standing up here and saying, God wants the best you now. God wants the best you. He wants to fix you. He wants to give you, in essence, an abundant life. And I, I fully believe in an abundant life. Don't hear me wrong. But He wants to fix you. You've got to understand, I've got to understand the flesh, the old Adam, the old nature, can never be fixed. There's nothing that God can do with it. It's got to be killed. It's got to be crucified. In, in any attempt, and this is where, okay, I love the message of grace because I hope you can hear that in my preaching all the time. The message of grace is so important. And so many people have missed the message of grace um, in, in the pulpit. In so many different ways. But the grace message has been twisted in pop Christianity in such a way that God desires you to be reformed. And I'm not talking about Martin Luther reformed or anything like that, reformed theology. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is, you just, so many of us preach from the pulpit the grace message. That God can make you stronger. God can help you overcome your alcoholism. God can fix you. And that's the grace message we preach. The grace that God actually provides is that you would be crucified. And that you would do something completely new. That you would be born again. That you would be regenerated. That's the grace. 
grace message that God is providing to us. So what is God's method of deliverance? What is God's method of seeing the flesh in? Where is the place where self-sufficiency stops? John 12 says this, 12, 24. You don't have to turn there. But this is God's, God's program, all right? 12, 24 says, Most assuredly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or fruit. God's game plan for your and my life is that we would die and be regenerated, be reborn, be resurrected, and that we would bear much fruit. So God's program is to crucify the old Adam and to raise the life of Christ within us. God's program is that death, without death, excuse me, there is no resurrection. Do you understand this? If something doesn't die, it doesn't resurrect. You can't resurrect something that is still trying to be alive or that is not dead. So let's turn to Romans 6. This is where I will spend the remainder of our time. Romans 6.1. What is, what is God's program? How does that all fit in to moving us into the promised land? Romans 6. Alright? It has a lot to say about this. So Paul at this place in Romans 6 is saying, you are under the faucet of God's grace. Alright? So if there were an open hose, a fire hose even, it is being just dumped on. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is never ending. It is being poured out on your life. Completely. And we are recipients of it as believers in Christ. Alright? So Romans 6, he's entering into the believer's life. What should he do with this life in the flesh? This is where, this is where Paul is ending in Romans 6. So 4 and 5, we're dealing with 3, 4 and 5, we're dealing with justification. And now 6 is, is entering into, what do we do with this thing called the flesh? What shall we say to you? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, you've heard that before. It's just, okay, now that we got a free flow of grace and, and it's nothing as to what we do, should we just go on sinning? Should we just go on living our lives? And Paul, Paul says, obviously, um, by no means. And, or he'd say, like, what are you, crazy? How can we who die to sin still live in it? How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The newness of life. So Paul is saying, do you not know this information? Okay, he's saying, first of all, there's a free-flowing faucet of free grace to you, regardless of what you do. Now should you enter into sin? No, you shouldn't enter into sin. Because you've got to know this. You've got to understand this. You, or should I say, Jesus has been crucified for our sins and to sin. And this is important to understand. You see, when Jesus died to sin, was put into the ground, he resurrected to a new life that no longer exists in the reality of the grips of sin. He resurrected outside of the stranglehold of sin. He, he no longer exists in a place, in a glorified body, where sin has any ability because he no longer has flesh. Now, Jesus never sinned. That's why he was completely able to um, die for our sins. So he died to sin as well as for our sins. Does that make sense? 
raised to a newness of life. So there's no more sin that could ever be affected. So the sting of death no longer has any hold on his life. He beat it when he resurrected. Now notice who is not in the picture in Romans 6. You or I is not in the, in the crucifixion. We did not go to the cross. There is no uh, self-crucification here. I cannot lay down on a cross and drive into my hands the spikes. I cannot put the crown of thorns on my own head. I cannot do those things. It was all Jesus, okay? It's not you who will kill yourself is what you've got to understand. But Paul begins to do something here, all right? In, in verse 5 he says, For if you have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. That you experience deliverance. That you begin to go into this place of milk and honey. Now that's my own words. That we, we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So he's saying, not only did Christ do this, but what God had in mind in God's program is that you would be co-crucified with Christ and raised to a newness of life with Christ. And that it's Christ's work and all Christ's work and none of your work that is doing this. But that you can identify and begin to identify the same things that happened to Christ and that you are raised to a newness of life. So catch this verse 11. Alright? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead and deep to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon. Reckon yourself. That's just another word for faith. Consider yourself. Place your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And all that that means for you. And that will be appropriated to you as your own. And it's not you doing the work in self-effort or self-sufficiency. But you've trusted in Christ's work. And this is the place when we receive that grace that we'll begin to find deliverance from our sin. We'll begin to flow in the Spirit in such a way. And God's, Christ's character within us will begin to flow through us. Because we've simply placed our faith in the finished work of God. And the worship team can come on up. <coughs> this is radical to me. And mysterious. And it's hard to grasp. And this is why the wilderness is so important to our lives. The wilderness is so important to our lives because um, the Lord's got to, got to take us to a place where we realize that there's no amount of self-effort that will get us to the promised land. And then it's at that place where we put our faith and trust in the finished work of God. Miles J. Stanford said it this way. It was on the cross of Calvary that God in Christ dealt fully and finally with self. The nature from which our sins flow. <clears throat> we know that our old unrenewed self was nailed to the cross with him in order. That our body, which is the instrument of sin, that the instrument of sin might be made ineffective. And inactive for evil, that we might no longer be slaves of sin. Romans 6 6. 
The reason there is no other way for self to be denied is that God has done the work in this way. Our identification with Christ in His death and resurrection, it is done. Now it is ours to believe. G. Watt said this, The flesh will only, only yield to the cross, not to all the resolutions you, and, you may make at a conference, not to any self-effort, not to any attempted self-crucification, only to co-crucifixion, crucified together with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is not by putting yourself to death, but by taking through faith and surrender your place, uh, the, your place of union with Christ in His death. That is the blessed barrier of safety between you and all the attractions of the flesh and what makes the way open to do the will of God. So you and I might find ourselves in a place of um, struggle this morning or even not experiencing any deliverance, and by no means do we understand ourselves to be spiritual men or women. But the Lord's intention for you is that His grace would freely flow into your life and you would have a relational union with the Holy Spirit. And so maybe you've been placing your trust in a number of ways to get, try to gain victory. And you in your mind, you know that you've been fighting that battle and you haven't been winning. You've been struggling through it. You've gotten no closer to that promised land. In fact, if anything, you've been moved back and you're in a place of despair or there's a, there's, there's a place of just stagnation in your life. I'm just going to read some scripture to you that I just took a bunch of scripture and as we begin to um, go into a time of worship, I'm going to read this scripture just succinctly to you. And, and it, it, so it's not, it's all, from all different places, but I just want you to hear the flow of scripture and what God says to you, because this is what the truth. If you will hold on to the word of God and not what you're feeling or what you're going through or all these different things, but if you will hold to the final work of God and what he says, he can complete what he's going to do. He can complete what he says. So I just put a grouping of passages together from Hebrews to Romans to Corinthians. And I just want you to hear them and hold them onto them. If you'd like to come down and ask for prayer and have some prayer, people pray over you, that's fine as well. And then we'll be done. Um, but I'm going to read these scriptures for you and just pray that you would hold on to them. And it starts out in Hebrews. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall with him, uh, excuse me, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin, with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the, on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Father, I just pray that that would be this group of people here. That they would walk in the Spirit. That they would draw near to the Lord, knowing that there is nothing that they will be able to do to draw into His presence, to enter back into a relationship with Him except through the finished work of Christ. I pray for those who are in despair, who are those who, those who have found themselves to try to get victory, and trying to get victory over those different sins, whatever it may be, and they found themselves lacking and unable to get victory in it. I pray that they would end in that place and trust in Christ. Trust in, in what Christ did on the cross and trust in His resurrected life and find themselves flowing in the Holy Spirit in victory over that sin. So Lord, I just pray that we would end our self-sufficiency, our strength, our attempts at mastering ourselves and we would get on God's program and what He did. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your many blessings. Oh 
Savior. 